Well, if you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John chapter 2. We're going to continue on in our verse-by-verse study through this gospel account. Remember, if you have no idea where the gospel of John is, that's okay. It's in the New Testament. Feel free to use the table of contents or go kind of halfway in your Bible and start flipping right. And you're going to hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll get to John. Look for the big number two at the top, and then we're going to be in verse number 12. So we're going to um, go 12 through 25 through the end of chapter 2 this morning as we are uh, doing a sermon series entitled, That You May Believe, which is what John, the, the purpose of John's gospel that he wrote. You'll see that at the very end. He said, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so we're, we're looking at this gospel account together. And as you're opening up there and turning to John chapter 2, I want you to think about a building or a structure that you hold dear in your heart. Think about like a, a building or a structure or a place that you hold dear in your heart. It might be Bryant-Denny Stadium. It might be Samford Hall. If you're of the Ole Miss persuasion, it might be the Grove. It might be your first home. It might be that little church that you grew up in. It might be your grandma's house. It might be where you got your first job. Just these spaces, these places that we just hold very dear in our hearts. For me, when I think about one of them, I've got several of them, but for one, it's for me, it's, it's Clemson Memorial Stadium. It's Frank Howard Field. And it's not just so much that it's, it's not just the stadium. That's just, you know, brick and mortar and rusty bleachers. It's more than just the stadium. It's all the stuff that goes around it, all the wonderful memories attached to it. Seeing my dad back at his alma mater, hearing stories about his time there as his eyes twinkled under his orange hat, just back in his place. He's got his ring on, just walking around Clemson with my dad. It's just wonderful memories. It's the fight songs. It's the tailgates. It's the friendships. It's the sliding down the hill on a pizza box. It's hearing the home crowd roar. It's where we actually told my parents that they were going to be grandparents for the first time. And they immediately went inside to one of the bookstores there and bought a little uh, Clemson Tiger stuffed animal that we still have to this very day. You know, so it's not just the stadium. It's all the memories that surround it. You probably have a place like that in your own heart. And places like this are so much more than just places of interest or waypoints on Google Maps, aren't they? It's just, there's just something about it. And we love these spaces because they have, we have such strong memories attached to them or they act as symbols that point beyond themselves to something greater, right? So you think about like Clemson, for me, the football stadium, it points to something bigger than itself. Just the, the whole larger, all that sea of memories, you, that stadium just brings all of that flooding back to me. I think this is what made the events at the Capitol building so hard to watch that regardless of your political affiliation, it was hard to watch as fellow Americans broke into the building that symbolizes the very essence of our constitutional republic and the grand ongoing experiment of self-governance that makes our country a, a beacon to millions around the world. You see people breaking into the Capitol building and the kind of the seat of our constitutional republic, and you look at that and go, that's just not right. It's just, it shouldn't be that way. And people have often referred to these places that we're thinking of. A lot of times they'll refer to them as temples. You know, this is like a temple of a democracy, or this is the temple of football, or this is the temple of whatever. They'll refer to these places as temples because they somehow feel sacred and we hold them dear in our memories, and it's sad when they disappear. 
I think about this. Have you ever seen when an old stadium gets blown up? Like it might get imploded to make way for a new stadium? Who shows up? The fans. The fans show up and they want to say their goodbyes one more time to this old stadium, even if it was completely falling apart. They want to show up and see it one last time before it goes away because they have so many memories attached to it. And I always feel a little sad like this every time I see an old historic church that's been turned into like apartments or a restaurant or something. You know, I just look at that and go, oh, what used to be? It's more, I know the church is more than a building, I get that, but somehow when you see an old historic church turned into a coffee shop downtown, you're like, man, I wish they were still preaching the gospel there and it wasn't a place to go get a latte. Now, as you're thinking about that, that place that you have in your mind and in your heart, I want you to imagine going back to visit one of those sacred places and then seeing it used for something completely contrary to its original purpose and feeling like all those memories that you have are now being stomped on. There's an Amazon show that I watched called Man in the High Castle. I don't know if any of you have seen it. it what it does, it's really unique because what it does is it actually imagines a post-World War II America as if the Axis powers had won. And so what you have is Japan controlling the west, kind of west of the Rockies, and Germany controls the east, east of the Rockies, and you kind of have this big space in the middle that's kind of like no man's land or the you know, neutral ground. And the thing that you watch the show as you watch it and you, you see the series unfold, I, feel, I felt this like anger and indignation rising up in my heart when I see the, when you see they're depicted, the Nazis coming and tearing down the Statue of Liberty. It's kind of just like your, your American, like, it's like, that's not right. You see them take the Liberty Bell, completely melt it down, and then recast it into a swastika that goes over a building. You see maybe the Japanese flag or the the Nazi flag flying over the White House or flying over San Francisco, and you, you just watch it, and you just, in your mind, you just go, that's not right. I felt that indignation welling up in my heart when I watched that because I love my country. Now, imagine how you would feel if you walked into the temple of God and it looked more like trade day on a Saturday morning instead of being a house of worship, mercy, and reverence. Imagine walking into the house of God. I want you to hold on to that feeling as we read this text, okay? John chapter 2, starting in verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, we need you to meet us here. Holy Spirit, please work in our hearts. Christ, we long to exalt you, O Lord. And so, Father, meet us here. Thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. And, Father, help us to receive it with love and grace and with an open heart. And we pray and ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let me tell you another little story. In 1511, a 28-year-old German Catholic monk made his pilgrimage to the holy city of Rome. And years later, he would come to call it one of the most disappointing experiences of his entire life. Because you see, one of the things that when good Catholic monks visited Rome, they would visit a place called the Scala Sancta. In Latin, that is the Holy Stairs. They would visit these Holy Stairs. And according to the Christian tradition, these were the very steps that led up to the Praetorium of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, when Jesus, which Jesus Christ stood on during his passion on his way to trial. And the stairs were said to have been brought to Rome by St. Helena in the 4th century. And yet, as this monk began to scale these holy steps in an effort to free his grandfather from purgatory, they would say, as you went up each step on your knees, what you would do is you would recite a prayer, and little by little, you would hopefully, each step, you would work, work your loved one's way out of purgatory. And as he did this, with all intention in his heart, he was taken back by the sights and sounds of the buffet of immorality and selfishness that was going on around him in the streets of Rome. So the contrast was really jarring. Here he is trying to you know, pray his way up the stairs and all he sees around him and hears around him is just debauchery in the streets of Rome. He would later write, it was almost incredible. What infamous actions are committed at Rome, one would, re one would require to see it and hear it in order to believe it. It was an ordinary saying that if there is a hell, Rome is built upon it. It is an abyss from whence all sins proceed. Rome, once the holiest city, was now the worst. Let me get out of this terrible dungeon. Pretty strong words. You may have picked up by now that those words were actually penned by the German monk Martin Luther. And the city that had come to symbolize the heart of worship of God for Luther had become a symbol for all that was wrong in the Catholic Church. Luther realized that a reset was needed to restore the church to its true purpose, and we know his original desire was to reform the Roman Catholic Church, but it eventually led to the Protestant Reformation in 1517. I think we've all experienced moments like this when we think about Luther going into Rome with a set of expectations only to be met with crushing reality. We've all experienced moments like this where the curtain's been pulled back on even the most kind of sacred and, and, and holy things in our lives, and we've all felt disappointment when we found that even they have been broken by sin in the fall. That's exactly the feeling that I want you to hold on to this morning as we consider this event from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We've all been at the point, maybe you've even noticed as you read the news or whatever, you may have asked, is there nothing sacred left? Is there nothing sacred left in the world? When you see that even the things that we think have been untainted by sin, every now and then we, you know, the curtain gets pulled back and we realize, oh, that too? Now, I want us to ask the big question this morning. Okay, so if that's true, how does present brokenness that we see in the world point us forward to something better? 
How does the present brokenness that we see point us forward to something better? And we're going to use the events at the temple in John chapter 2 to answer this question, okay? If you're a note-taking type of person, these are our two points. We're going to see brokenness in the temple. Then we're going to see restoration through the temple. So brokenness in the temple, restoration through the temple. Those are our two points. First one's going to be longer, okay? Just letting you know. Let's look at that first point. Brokenness in the temple. This is basically verses 12 through 17. Okay, in verse 12, after his quiet miracle at the wedding feast at Cana, remember that was last week, Jesus, his family, and his disciples headed about 16 miles northeast from the hill country of Cana down to the Sea of Galilee. So they're going down topographically and to the town of Capernaum. We see in verse 13 that after a few days, we're told that Jesus went back up topographically 2,575 feet above sea level as he traveled to Jerusalem. Most scholars think this was about a four-day journey by foot. And we are also told that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And this took place every year in Jerusalem. And every Jewish male was expected to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at this time. Deuteronomy 16.16 talks about this. And so they were required to go for this week-long festival commemorating the freedom of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And was also, these folks, when they went on pilgrimage, they were also instructed to not come empty-handed, but to bring a sacrifice, to bring something with them. And so as Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and then he goes up the Temple Mount to the temple itself, he's shocked by what he sees. Given that this was a high feast day and a required pilgrimage, you can imagine that the city and the temple were just absolutely packed with people. People everywhere. People had come and converged for this week. And in the outer courts of the temple, what Jesus saw is a big market had been set up as kind of a one-stop shop for pilgrims to get their needed supplies for what had been deemed acceptable worship. An animal sacrifice was needed to offer for atonement, but only one that was deemed acceptable by a, a temple official. So people would oftentimes just leave their offering at home for fear that it would be rejected, and then they would just purchase one on site for an additional convenience fee and for the blessing of the temple official to say, this one's okay. They're like, why in the world am I going to go on foot and haul this animal all the way if I don't really know that it's going to be acceptable? What I'll do is I'll just buy one when I get there. You also saw that an, anim- that an annual half-shekel temple tax was required, and it had been deemed by the temple official that only Tyrian coins could be used because of the high purity of the silver used in their production. And so money changers had been set up to convert the unacceptable, remember, unacceptable to acceptable. They were taking the unacceptable foreign currency and changing it into acceptable temple currency for a small fee, of course. Now, these vendors, with the permission of the temple authorities, had set up a monopoly on what was considered appropriate worship, and they were leveraging this for their advantage inside the temple itself by preying on people's fears that their sacrifices might not be deemed acceptable and that they had traveled a long distance for nothing. It's like you ever gone to a sporting event and you get inside and you have to show your your ticket and you're not allowed to kind of come and go. Once you're in, you're in, right? And you get inside and you're not allowed to leave and then you get hungry. Now, we all know that food inside of a sporting event is probably about five million times more expensive than it should be, right? But you realize that they've got you. And if you're hungry, unless you've snuck a PB&J in in your socks, that you're going you're gonna to have to pay that money to buy that overpriced hot dog. We've all been there. We've all felt that. 
That's kind of what it feels like. Here you've traveled all this way. You can't get out. You have, to, you have to offer this. You have to offer that. And the only way to get it is from somebody that tells you this is okay. And booths like this had always existed in the town below, but little by little, the big thing that we see is little by little, they had crept up the stairs, they had crept up the temple mount, and now they were actually being included in the temple complex itself. And this is what made Jesus righteously angry. Here's what D.A. Carson said in his helpful commentary. He said, Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there was noisy commerce. It's like imagine us going into a time of silent prayer or silent confession as we have always, as we usually do. And imagine during that time all you hear is just noise and clamor and cows mooing and sheep bleeding and people, you know, haggling over prices and stuff. And here you are having, trying to have a quiet moment with the Lord and all you hear is just noise of commerce going around. That's what I want you to have in your mind. In the later occasion recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, and there's some, there's some debate here as to were there two temple cleansing? Is John putting this there at the beginning for theological reasons? I'm not going to spend 30 minutes going into the minutia of that. I'll give you a really big commentary if you want to get into that. But the authors included the words of Isaiah 56.7 and Jeremiah 7.11 to show that this event was also a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Mark chapter 11, just one of these examples in the Synoptic Gospels, remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke are Synoptics, is the Synoptic Gospels, they follow the same kind of account. Here's what Mark 11 says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. We also see it was the fulfillment of Malachi 3, 1 through 3. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So you see that Jesus is coming and doing all this is fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But it also reminds us today that God is to be worshipped on his terms, not ours. And that we're to approach him with reverence and awe and with a sincere and contrite heart. God is to be worshipped on his terms. He is the one who says, this is how I am to be worshipped. We are not the ones to say, well, we think, we think you're best worshipped like this. We submit ourselves to the Lord and we let him decide what is acceptable for worship. And in verses 15 and 16, against the backdrop of this loud temple market and bazaar, Jesus makes a whip of cords and starts driving the cattle and sheep out of the temple. Here's what Ian Duguid said. Jesus probably used the whip to encourage large animals of sacrifice, such as sheep and oxen, to lumber out of the temple courts, knowing their keepers would have to follow. <clears throat> Jesus then upends the broker's tables and pours out their coins, making clear what it is that offends him when he orders, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. The temple was to be consecrated, set apart as holy, precisely because it was the house of God. As such, the type of transactions being carried out should not have been taking place within the temple precincts. Those who were doing business in the temple, even business necessary for the worship of God, were misusing his dwelling place. And when you look at this, 
I've read a bunch of different commentaries for a bunch of different people, and some have tried to apologize for Jesus by trying to water down the intensity in this passage rather than just being faithful to the text. Is Jesus meek and mild? Yes. Is he gentle and lowly? Yes, he tells us that he is. But in this moment, he had a righteous anger about what was occurring in and around the temple because the temple was supposed to be set apart for the glory of God and for the worship of his name. And he walks in and it looks more like trade day all the way around with a little bit of temple stuff going on. Again, here's what D.A. Carson said. Jesus' cleansing of the temple testifies to his concern for pure worship, a right relationship with God at the place supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. And also make no mistake, when Jesus does this, he places himself in direct confrontation with those religious leaders. Remember, they had this whole complex and this whole like sub-economy set up. And Jesus sets on the scene, and you are kidding yourself if you don't think that Jesus made people angry when he did this. He put, them, he put himself in direct confrontation with the religious leaders of the day, and really, from this point forward in the narrative, they all begin to plot against him. Look at verse 17. John includes a little bit of narration from the disciples' perspective that points to this opposition. Let's look at verse 17. Let's read that again. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. What happens here is Psalm 69 verse 9 is quoted, which is a psalm in which David lamented the opposition and reproach he had experienced for wanting to preserve the purity of worship in the temple of God. And as we transition to the second half of this narrative this morning, we see Jesus in direct conflict with the religious leaders who were so focused on the trappings surrounding the temple that they missed what actually made it the temple, which is the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. They're so concerned with all of the trappings that go around with the temple life that they're missing the whole point of the temple. The whole point of the temple is the very central part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And they're just concerned with all the trappings around. There was brokenness in the temple. But John is about to show us how redemption would actually come through the temple. That's our second point. So we see brokenness in the temple. Now we see redemption through the temple. You're like, how's that work? Glad you asked. Look at verse 18. Rousing the ire of the temple authorities, they converge on Jesus and demand that He showed them a miraculous sign to prove that he had the authority to regulate the temple. They're like, who are you? Prove it. They had every right to ask this type of question, but it points to the lack of self-reflection about whether or not Jesus was right in his attempts. They don't ever think, hey, maybe we shouldn't have a market up here on the temple mount in the outer courts. Maybe we shouldn't. They just go, who are you? Who are you to tell us that what we're doing is wrong? Prove it. At the heart level, they were more concerned with preserving their authority than preserving the proper worship of God. And this is a stinging indictment. And in verse 19, when pressed to show a sign, Jesus offers a seemingly enigmatic response. Look at what he says in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In verse 20, you can tell the Jews missed the true meaning, much like they did back in in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 where they send this envoy out to find out what John the Baptist is all about. And John the Baptist says, there's one in your midst. The promised one is in your midst, and you missed him. There again, they're missing the big point here. Because of their, you see this bewildered response. Again, they're more focused on the temple stones than they are the rock of ages that it ultimately points to. 
They missed the whole thing. In verses 21 and 22, John again provides a bit of commentary for us in case we also miss the true meaning of Christ's words in verse 19. Look at what he says in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the, raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. John in many ways gives us a little insight in case we missed it too. He says, no, 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 no. Jesus wasn't talking about the stones. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his own body. And this is the heart of the passage, okay? Jesus is the true temple. And redemption would come through him being utterly destroyed in his body and rebuilt three days later. Now, there are many Christians these days who are still waiting for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt in Israel before God will fully come. But if we believe this scripture and we believe the words of Christ, the temple has already been built in Jesus and we look forward to his glorious return. We're not waiting for the stones to be stacked back up in Jerusalem before God can really work. God is already at work. The very fact that he continues to draw sinful people unto himself is an amazing thing. God is already at work. Jesus says, I'm the temple. I am the temple. And redemption will come through me. Colossians 2, chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the law's demands for sin and replaced the endless cycle of temple sacrifices for atonement with the ultimate sacrifice of his own body. Think about what is being said here. Jesus himself was utterly destroyed, but then rebuilt on the third day. Also, by being the true and better temple, he also ended worrying about whether or not what you brought with you was good enough to atone for your sin. Think about this. Could you imagine making the trip to this temple and going, I don't know if what I have is going to be acceptable. Is this going to be approved? Is what I have good enough to atone? Jesus put an end to all of that. And that's good news, ladies and gentlemen, for you and for me. That's good news. Why? Because Jesus has paid the temple tax with his own blood. He has offered himself as the spotless lamb. That temple curtain that separated the holy God from people, this thick curtain was torn in two from top to bottom at Christ's death. He became the stone that the builders rejected. But later that stone would be rolled away at his resurrection and now Christ is our chief cornerstone. Everything is built around him. But you see, you, you missed the stones. You're so busy looking at the stones that you missed Jesus himself. He has replaced all of that with just a call to come to him, the true and living temple, empty-handed in your brokenness by faith alone. He says, don't go home and get a bunch of stuff that you feel like you need to come and prove yourself to me. Come empty-handed by faith, trusting that I'm going to give you what you need. Here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we, on our own and without Christ, were unacceptable in the, in the sight of a holy God. Without Christ, unacceptable. No, you can't bring that into the temple. You can't bring that into God's presence. You can't bring yourself in. The good news of the gospel is through the blood of Christ, we've been declared right with God and made acceptable in His sight because those who trust in Christ are covered in a righteousness that is not their own. It says, your righteousness isn't good enough. I'm going to give you a new one. I'm going to give you mine. 
Jesus said, I'm going to give you my righteous record. My sacrifice will be counted in your place. My righteous living under the law and my fulfilling the law's demands that you could never keep on your own because it is backbreaking and crushing. It's this endless cycle. He said, I'm going to fulfill it all for you. And you don't deserve a bit of it. But I do it for you because I love you. Don't you see that's good news? That allows you to rest in what Christ has done. You don't have to keep doing it on your own. You come to Christ and you say, Lord, I believe in you and I trust in what you have done on my behalf. And if that sinks into your bones, it changes everything. It changes everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 tells us, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. I preach it every week because that's what I'm called to do. I preach Christ crucified. Bring your brokenness. Bring your guilt. Bring your shame. Bring your exhaustion from trying to be good all the time and to be perfect. For years without assurance. Bring your self-righteousness. Bring your cynicism. Bring your pride. Bring your divided heart. Lay it all down at the foot of the cross and trust in Christ alone with empty hands. Bring all of that stuff and dump it at Jesus' feet. Bring it. Bring your sin. Bring your shame. Bring your guilt. Bring that secret thing that you're so afraid that Jesus didn't die for that one. He did. Bring your cynical heart. Bring your foolish pride. Bring all of your vain attempts to try to, to try to justify yourself before a holy God. And you've been living for years without assurance knowing that God loves you because you've been trying to do it yourself. Bring it all. Bring every bit of it. And dump it at the feet of cross. And say, Jesus, you have made me right. You are the reason that I live. You are my chief cornerstone. I have nothing apart from you. And praise be to Christ that you have moved towards me in the midst of my brokenness and my shame. And you have called me out and you have made me your own. It changes everything. Changes absolutely everything. Revelation twenty two seventeen. I'm almost done. Closing words of the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. The Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's the good news of the gospel. Come empty-handed and just say, Lord, I need you. Do you trust Christ like this this morning? Is he your only hope, or is he just your backup plan in case what you're trying doesn't work out? Your plan is not going to work. It's just not. You know it too. You know it deep down. Because you probably sinned on the way to church this morning. And you're going to sin on the way home. And so if it's up to you to constantly be keeping it up in and of yourself, you know you're going to fall flat on your face. That's why you need Jesus. I'm going to do it too. I sinned on the way here. I've sinned all morning. I don't even know that I have and I have. Just because I'm a minister up here standing behind the pulpit doesn't make me perfect. Far from it. I need Jesus just like you. And this is our only hope, ladies and gentlemen. We preach Christ crucified. Period. Full stop. I close with the call of 1 Peter 2, 4-6. through As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Come empty-handed to the temple of mercy, to the true temple, to the true sacred space, and find rest for your souls that will never fade and you will never be put to shame. That's the good news of the gospel. You can calm down and rest in Christ. He has made you right. He has made you acceptable in the sight of the Father through his blood. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that every bit of it's true. As we think about just the great promises of the gospel, Lord, you have made us right. Lord, forgive us, Father, for spending so much time focused on all the trappings that surround Christianity and missing the Christ. Lord, we long to see you. We long to know you more, know you in a deeper way, worship you in fullness of heart. Forgive us for all the ways that we have come into your house just with kind of a shrug of the shoulders. Lord, may we come into your house and we we come to you in prayer with praise on our lips going, why in the world, O Lord, would you ever be so good to a sinner like me? But yet, thank you, Jesus, that you have. And Lord, we are thankful that in your body you took all of the wrath of God and it has been put away. You were utterly destroyed and then built back together on the third day to rise in resurrection to give us hope. And we look to your return where you will return in glory. But as you tarry, Lord, we trust you by faith. I pray if we're here this morning and we're, we're still holding on to our own righteous record, we would just repent. Father, we long to come to you and to bring our shame and to bring our guilt, to bring our cynical hearts to bring all the ways that we've fallen short. And we come to you, O Lord, with empty hands and ask, Lord, please, please hear our prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel. May we never grow tired of hearing it. May I never grow tired of preaching it. And it will be our dying breath until the very end, Lord. You have done great things. That's our prayer. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.